turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's a real joy to be back together to worship the Lord today, to enjoy the fellowship with one another, and be a part of the ministry that goes on here week by week. Ready to open up the Word of God today, which King David wrote in Psalm 138, verse 2. He said of it, he said, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Psalm chapter 18, verse 30, he says of the Word of God, he says, as for the as for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He's a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So as we get ready to open the word, it's obviously an important undertaking. Taking time to be in the word of God and to know what it says, what it means by what it says, how that applies uh, to us. And we we're going to do that today as we normally do in an exegetical expository manner. Exegetical just means to examine the scriptures closely. And expository just means to explain the meaning or give the sense of the passage. That's how the Lord has set up his word to be taught. And we do that comparing scripture with scripture from a literal, historical, grammatical context. That's what it means to the first readers. That's what it means still. We don't get the option of trying to figure out some new meaning. It still means that now because the Lord gave it so that we would understand it and be able to live by it, that we could open it up and understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies. And so my prayer for us today is just to continue to do today what I hope that you've been doing all the way through the week, which is just taking some time and setting it aside each day as a priority to read and study God's Word. And over the last three weeks, I've encouraged you in that way. It's not unusual for me to do that. But as we start new semesters, as we perhaps start new jobs and all things uh, becoming more uh, difficult and harder as you go through the year, it's important to set some habits early. Prioritize that time in the Word so that you can have the blessing the Lord has intended for the reading of His Word and to know what it says and be able to be conformed to it. So let's look at the, look at the Word now that has been tried and found true, is magnified in its importance by God Himself, and when we treasure it, we will know how we ought to live and how to avoid sinfulness. Look at verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. To continue verse by verse study. First Timothy 12, I'm going to pick up right there. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, as we read that section that we're going to study today, you can see right away it's a marvelous passage, and it's packed full of important principles and examples based on the Apostles' salvation experience. And last week, we just got our feet wet, as it were, in this section, and we'll dive in fully today as Paul leaves for the moment his condemnation of the false teachers, which he started in verse 1 and worked all the way through verse 11, and his warning to Timothy on how to deal with the false teachers and on how messed up the gospel is. And he delivers his testimony. And we saw last time, really, as we tried to understand why this is a break right here, that he's really using himself as an example of the proper understanding and the teaching of the gospel, which includes the law, taught correctly, 
That's the bad news, that we've all violated it. And the wonderful grace of God expressed in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, which is good news. In contrast to false teachers then, Paul presents himself as a true teacher. In, in contrast to the powerlessness of the false gospel, that gospel of self-righteousness, he presents the power of the true gospel. And in contrast then to the proud, self-righteous men who think they can use the Word of God however they want to use it and do whatever they want to do with it, Paul presents himself as a humble sinner who knows nothing about anything except Christ and Him crucified in weakness and fear. And when he realized his sin by the proper use of the law, he realized he has to fall on the grace and mercy of God. And that's a very, those are significant differences from the false teachers both then and today and what true teaching looks like. And so when Paul wanted to give Timothy and the rest of, of this undoubtedly confused church now because of the false teachers that are in it, the most effective illustration of sound gospel teaching and what it produces, contrasted with this disaster of misusing the word, he relates his own transformation. And just briefly from last time, I'll just review this just briefly if you missed that. In verse 12, there's four things really as we got started that faithful biblical teaching expressed initially in the correct gospel produced in Paul's life and what it produces in the life of every believer. And the first thing that we saw right there, chapter 12, it, it's thankfulness. Thanking him, of course, for everything that's in this text, of course, as it just kind of flow out of his gratefulness, but mostly for his redemption. It says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. There's always an overwhelming sense of gratefulness that's connected to salvation. That's because he was always... It was always to him a marvelous thing, the fact that God would even save him, the reality that Christ had saved him. God has that ability to transform lives that are broken, and that generates a desire to give thanks. And we saw last time that is, should be our first response. We don't want to fall too far away from that as we come to faith and then begin to grow. We always want to remain thankful that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you're a sinner, you're included in that number. He came to redeem you, and if he did, then thankfulness is our first response. And so we can understand Paul's first response, I thank Christ Jesus. The next thing we saw was, it says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, look at verse 12, who has strengthened me. So not only did he save Paul, he enabled him or empowered him. And the idea there really is, Jesus gives salvation, he also enables and strengthens those he redeems to live it out. It wouldn't be enough just to have salvation without the ability to live it out because we'd never have any victory. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, very clearly Paul says to the church, I'm confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. He started the work, he continues the work, and he'll continue it right up until glorification. And that's how Paul lived his whole life. All that happened is a result of the gospel power to transform him. And along those same lines, then there's no imagination in our own heart that it is us accomplishing anything for eternity. It's Christ doing that work. Jude 24 him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. All the way through, he's able to keep you on track and able to present you before the Lord. John 15, 5, apart from me, Jesus said, you can what? Do nothing. And that's that whole teaching on the vine and the branches. Go, and I have ordained you to bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the whole work that goes along with uh, that salvation is part of the true transformation of the gospel. Thirdly, we saw faithfulness and trustworthiness. It says, uh, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me and considered me faithful. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. We looked at that last time. And apart from the Lord, we won't be faithful. He didn't look around and say, hey, there's some faithful people. Let's bring them into the kingdom because we can use that trait for the good of the kingdom. 
faithfulness is part of the fruit of the Spirit and faithfulness to ministry, to the kingdom, trustworthiness and walking by the Spirit. Mark it. These are all markers of redemption. Faithfulness, that fruit of faithfulness in your life is a marker of redemption. Accomplished by the Spirit and the power of the Gospel. Now, it's not a dumbed-down gospel. It's not freelancing and doing whatever you will with the Word of God, saying whatever you want to say, using a verse and then talking about whatever you want to talk about. You're not going to come to the point where you understand or even uh, comprehend what God has done and what He expects to happen from you. And so very, very important that we catch that. That power is in the transformation of the true gospel. And when it's delivered correctly and believed, it produces faithfulness and it makes the Holy Spirit then mark it visible and known in your life and in the life of the church. And we saw also that trustworthiness and faithfulness to give out and live out the gospel increases the ministry the Lord can do through you. So the idea then is, you know, as, as we've noticed as Jesus talked about in, in a house, and uh, Paul as well talked about in a house, there are, there are, um, there are vessels for... for uh, good things and vessels for wicked things. And we want to be a vessel that's used for good things, don't we? We have, an, we have an understanding that we want to be good stewards. And the more useful you will be if you're good stewards. The longer in the faith you are, the more faithful you are to do what you want. The Lord will broaden that ministry that he has for you and count you worthy to continue to advance the kingdom. You don't want to be with those that the Lord's just kind of set on the side because you're not doing anything. See, The more faithful you are, the more God will use you. And even though it's all... Even then, it's all by His power. And the last one we saw last week really flowed right out of the previous ones and the power of the gospel. And that's, that's number four, purpose or usefulness. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful. He says, putting me into service. Salvation gave you your purpose in life before you didn't know what it was. Uh, you're given faithfulness for a purpose. Uh, we've been given a great commission. Paul says, He made me a minister he says he made me a servant in a very most lowly, humble service. And Jesus did the same for you and for me. He did the exact same thing. And you can tell by that term that Paul is not bragging about his wonderful trustworthiness or his great faithfulness. He's not seeking honor for himself some way. It's, pretty, uh, it's precisely what Paul intended to communicate in 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God's at the beginning, He's in the middle, He's at the end. He's at work in you. Salvation makes a transformation. It affects all of life. The things God does through the power of the gospel are not some limited kinds of things, see. The transformation goes way beyond the saving act. God is interested in bringing you to perfection. Changes affect the whole of the Christian life and ministry. And they are all, market indicating factors that you belong to Him. That growth that's visible is an indicating factor you belong to Him. Now look at verse 13 and following. We're going to see the power of the gospel, uh, not just to do these kinds of things, but to uncover the heart of men. Look at verse 13. And, and this is some of my favorite sections, and I think you can resonate with this as we get into it and understand what he's saying. Look at verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer. So Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And so in the next couple of verses, Paul speaks about his past life in four ways. And each time he speaks about it, it's worse than the one that comes before it. Look at the first one. Uh, he's a blasphemer. And that word has to do with injurious speech, abusive speech. Of course, his abusive speech was directed to Jesus. He spoke falsely about God. 
In fact, in, in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, one of the places Paul gives his full, first testimony, his full testimony, rather, he's trying to provoke followers of Jesus, he says, to say things they consider untrue about God. He says, and I punished them often in the synagogues. I kept trying to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So he took time to make sure and try to get them to say false things about God and false things about Christ. Not only did he do it, he wanted them to deny Jesus was the Messiah. And then the next way Paul describes his past life is that of a, he says, persecutor. And the word has to do with pursuing to do harm. And of course, interestingly enough, uh, when Paul was on Straight Street, he was approached and told that, uh, the one who approached him was told, I'll, I'm going to show him how much I'll have to suffer for my namesake. And not in some kind of retribution, but just the way it would work out as he modeled Christ. And Paul suffered then a lot of this type of persecution on him in his later life. But he certainly gave it out in his past life. And, and the next way Paul describes his past life is that of a violent aggressor. And that's from the verb hubridzo. We get our transliterated English word hubris. Excessive pride, self-confidence, which leads to, in Paul's case, outrageous action. An overly a bloated opinion of your own goodness and your own righteousness and your own opinion. And so that led to an outrageous types of actions against people. And we've looked at those passages before, and we won't do it again, that describe Paul's actions and the thoughts that provoked him. And then the last and most really, I think, damning way that Paul speaks about himself is found in verse 15. So skip forward there, if you would, and we'll just kind of round all these up in one group. And we'll look there just for a moment. He understood Jesus' mission was, and we saw this last time, to redeem sinners, and then he says this, among whom I am foremost of all. And so Paul, among all the other things that he did, he just says, listen, the Lord redeemed me, and I am foremost, that's the adjective protos, it has to do with rank. And there's no softening that statement. This is how Paul viewed his previous actions. And he says, I am, which is present active indicative. In other words, he's not saying, I was the worst of sinners, I am the worst. And he never softened that up anytime he gave his testimony. He never spruced up his image so he could uh, make himself look good to the world. And those observations that in Paul's testimony, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, or first of the worst, if you will, leads us to our fifth observation of the principle of the power of the gospel. And that's this. When the true gospel comes and transforms, it gives understanding and perspective. It gives understanding and perspective. This is the thinking of a healthy, regenerate heart an understanding of your past life. The gospel rightly presented produces a Christianity that has no sense of superiority. Paul knew what he'd been and what he was and what he continued to be in and of himself because of the gospel presented correctly, not, not uh, making people feel good, not, not uh, softening it up with a message so people will come and stay and not feel uncomfortable. So you can build a big church if you make sure you soften that up. This knowledge even increased with the years as he understood his heart even better than at first. And that's how it is with us. The more mature you get in the faith, the more you should be able to look at your previous life and say how wicked and see how wicked you really were. And that is the known true reality of authentic Christianity, beloved. That is the awareness of a graced heart, if you will, as we'll look at in just a minute. That's the wisdom that comes with sanctification which is based on looking in the mirror of the Word of God, a repentance that begins at the moment of conviction by the Holy Spirit, who illuminates those infractions 
and, and the times we violated God's law and offended the God who made us, and that understanding of our prior feelings and our continued ones can give us the best kind of worship. See, Not childish, impatient consumerism and wanting to feel good and feel like you've been in worship and feel like somebody did something so you had a, a feeling that you were in church. It has nothing to do with the reality of your own current situation. And, and, and older, you know, older Christianity, 100 years ago, they understood this. You, you read some of these old writings, you, you understand their expression of where they understood they, they are, even currently, a redeemed sinner who constantly fails, and what they were like before they came to faith. So that's a, a joy in, in worship tempered with the reality of who we are apart from Christ. That's a thinking of a healthy, regenerate heart. Now look at the rest of verse 13. He says this, he says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And that statement lets us see the sixth principle, and that is pity or compassion. And what do we mean by that? Well, it's just this, the power of the true gospel puts the mercy of God on display. On one level, Paul knew exactly what he'd been doing. He had been wrecking violence and even death on the followers of Christ. He was responsible for his sin. But the remarkable part about grace is when you own your sin, admitting you were ignorant in unbelief, God's mercy is revealed in, in all of its wonderful glory. Ignorant of who Jesus really is, but Paul, when he found out, he repented. He truly believed that he was serving God by stamping out the false messianic sect called Christians called the way we saw last week. But when he found out just how wrong he was, what did he do? Immediately repented. He didn't excuse his sin. He didn't excuse, I didn't know. He immediately repented. And he's not saying that his acting in ignorance and unbelief had earned him mercy by any stretch. Rather, ignorance and unbelief are common factors in the unredeemed. He wasn't knowingly defying God with purposeful defiance. He just hadn't disqualified himself from receiving mercy. He wasn't someone who clearly understood Jesus' teachings and yet rejected it like the Pharisees during Jesus' time. And I think it, it, this is a, a very important uh, principle, and I, I want to pause right here, and I want to clarify Paul's statement. And I want you to do that through looking up some passages, if you would. I'm not going to give you any slides on this one. I do this from time to time because I want you to be in the Word of God. If you bring the Bible, open it up. You need it. Numbers chapter 15, verse 25. And these are the passages that Paul understood in the light of God's law. And so I think, it's under, I think it's important that we understand them too. And you might find as you come through here some clarification on what salvation looks like and what the heart looks like. Because in the book of Numbers, and, and you, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So fourth book in, turn to the, the front of your Bible and four books in, you'll be there. And then chapter 15. God is instructing Moses on how the people are to respond to the law. So the law is there, and then Numbers takes them through and shows them how to respond to the law. The, the types of things people may do, and the appropriate sacrifice. And now remember, in, in reading all of this, we understand in the light of this, uh, the New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They understand that too, understood that too. But we understand that very clearly. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So these types of sacrifices that people were required to offer, market, were the activity of the faithful. If the blood and bulls of, blood and bulls of goats could never take away sin, then it has to be the activity of the faithful. And that's analogous to the or <clears throat> ordinances of baptism and communion. 
Neither of those take away sin either. Neither save. Uh, baptism doesn't save. Communion doesn't save. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't save. Okay? So they are the activity of the faithful. When you come and you celebrate communion, <clears throat> when you come to faith and you come forward in believer's baptism, which you should if you haven't, those, are, those activities don't save you. They indicate that you are and you're following in obedience. Does that make sense? So they're the activity of the faithful, those who believe that God would save them by faith. They participate in those kinds of things. And in the Old Testament, it was the same way. And God had to clarify what it meant to come and ask for forgiveness and mark this, what kind of heart condition he would accept. Okay? And this is very, very important. You'll see this in just a second. Now look at verse 25. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven, for it was an error. So it was a sin that's classified as an error. So they've sinned against God by committing an error. Okay? It, doesn't, it doesn't minimize it. They were confused, they were deceived, they made a mistake, that's what it means, a blunder, that's an error, it's still a sin. The worshiper sees it the same way God sees it, it's an offense to his law, and they have brought their offering, it says, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their, again, he uses the word, error. Now look at verse 26. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be, so a sin committed in error shall be what? What's your copy say? Forgiven. With the alien who surjoins among them, for it happened to all the people through error. So whether you're there visiting and you're not a Jew, or whether you're a Jew and you live there in the land, you commit a sin in error, you can bring this, you can bring this certain sacrifice, and it is forgiven. Now look at verse 27. Here's another qualification. Also, if one person sins, here it is, unintentionally, so accidentally, inadvertently, involuntarily, mark it, not deliberately, okay? It doesn't say deliberate there, it says unintentionally. Then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest, verse 28, shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who, look how God describes it, here's another way to look at it, goes astray. Goes astray when he sins unintentionally. Make an atonement for him. That, and this is a sin committed unintentionally, shall be what? He may be, what's your copy say? Forgiven. Verse 29, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who surjoins among them. Now I want you to mark something. This is a change in God's evaluation. Look at verse 30. But the person who does anything, what's the word? Defiantly. Defi rebelliously, you might say boldly, insolently, intentionally, sometimes some translations. Literally, the Hebrew word means with a high hand. In other words, you understand what God expected. You were clear on God and what he wanted you to do. And defiantly, that's a hard attitude, isn't it? I don't care what you say. I'm going to do this anyway. That's an important distinction to make. The person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is, how does God look at it? Blaspheming the Lord. It's called blaspheming, why? Because it's an intentional act of insubordination. And that person shall be, it says, cut off from among his people. 
That means he's excommunicated from Israel. Sometimes it translates death. For example, if you remember Achan and the things that he took during Jericho, right? He was defiantly disobeying what had been laid down to happen from the Lord, that you were to take nothing. He took it defiantly, hid it so it wouldn't be found. And what happened? He was found, and he was cut off, and, and at that point put to death. Verse 31, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. So there's the words that uh, have a, a different understanding, a different evaluation, somebody who does something defiantly, they're blaspheming the Lord, they've despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment, that person should be completely cut off. So what would happen to those who committed sins in this way? Would the sacrificial system atone for their sins? What's the answer? No. Why? Because they defiantly disobey. And so then they're just going through the motions. Do you understand that? That's an important distinction to make, and that's the reason for the passage. Moses is explaining to the people, it's a heart condition when you come. If you come and you send in these certain types of ways, you bring the right sacrifices and you are restored. If you come defiantly before the Lord, you don't really care, but you're just participating in the worship, the Lord's not accepting it. Do you understand that? And that's very important to understand. Now, you might wonder, is there a New Testament equivalent to that type of unforgiveness? Because in an easy believism, we have a problem, don't we? Because if you don't present the gospel correctly, then everybody's saved and it doesn't matter what you do. Right? So let's make sure that that's the case or isn't the case. Turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Matthew 12, 22. Here's, and there are a number of places we could look at it. We will look at a few other ones. But this is the New Testament counterpart to that heart attitude. And we're going to see it exemplified in the Pharisees. People say, well, why are Pharisees in the Bible? So you'll know who not to be like. Okay, Jesus is there for us to model. We're supposed to do, Paul says, have you, have you heard and seen in me? Do. But then the Pharisees are there so we understand what not to do. So, Jesus is doing his ministry. <clears throat> Verse 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and he saw. All the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man can't be the son of God, can he? In other words, I mean, everything that's happening here and everything he's saying tends to point to the fact this is the Messiah. So that's the trend with the crowd who are following him. But there's some people who don't think that. Look at verse 21, 24. But when the Pharisees heard what, what the crowd were saying, is this the Messiah, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul. So if you don't know that name, that's the Philistine deity associated with satanic idolatry. And then just to tap where they were clear, he does it by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they are attributing the clear work of God through Jesus to the ruler of the demons, Satan himself. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because, why? Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, and that's helpful when Jesus is having a dialogue with the Pharisees. He already knows what they're thinking. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So he's just, he knows their thoughts, and he's making mockery of this ridiculous, illogical statement. He dismissed the statement of the Pharisees, patently illogical, by their own experience. They're going to have some experience with a divided house. They're going to understand that that can't work. So their solution to Jesus doing what he's doing can't be the case. And then he says this, verse 27, If I, 
by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So there's a little sarcasm there on Jesus' point. If I, the Son of God, am casting out by Beelzebul, guess who you're, you're serving? And then he says this, For this reason, they, that's the demons, will be your judges. So at some point, demons will play some part in confirming the judgment on rebelliously, unrepentant, boldly, insolently, intentionally sinful, rejecting Christ's right to rule. And I think it's likely that that's going to be in hell. Because guess what? The demons aren't confused about Jesus' true identity. Satan knows precisely that Christ went to the cross and conquered death. There's no confusion down below where they're having some arguments about, well, maybe he really isn't the Messiah. They know precisely who's the Messiah. So the deception is on the part of men. And so Jesus says, they even know who actually the kingdom belongs to. And so some, at some point, they're going to be your judges. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which is the reality of what's going on here, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the king's in their midst and displaying his sovereign power, and it's obvious. He says he's the Messiah, and he's doing everything the Scripture said the Messiah would do. So before the Pharisees, it's very clear, Jesus is precisely who he says he is, and Jesus knows their thoughts. And then he says this, verse 29, How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he'll plunder his house? So, beloved, who's the strong man in this illustration? That would be Jesus, right? Because Jesus has, has told us, and we understand very clearly, that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. But the true king has come, and his kingdom is apparent, and so Jesus has tied up the strong man. Who's that? Beelzebul, and taken his stuff. And who's the stuff? Well, namely this guy who was the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. So who did he belong to before Jesus came? He belonged to Satan, and he had demons inside of him. And who was the strong man? Jesus. And he bound up Beelzebul and carried off his stuff and saved him. And so it was clear what's going on here, see? Now, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral place for you to be here. Either I'm the king, and you recognize I'm the king, or you can't just sit back and say, well, we'll just see, because if you do that, you're not in that kingdom. Therefore, verse 31 I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. And that makes sense, doesn't it? What kind of people? Well, we have some understanding of that, don't we? If it's done in error, if it's done by mistake, if it's a blunder, if it's unintentional, it's accidental, it's inadvertent, it's involuntary, it's by ignorance in Paul's respect, right? If it's unbelieving because you haven't been exposed to it, that's, that's really the case of everyone, isn't it? That's where everybody is. But when the gospel, when it comes, if they seek God in repentant faith, it can be forgiven, regardless of what it is, right? Because Paul's a perfect example of that. He blasphemed and taught other people to blaspheme, but he says, I was forgiven because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So there's this whole classification there. If it's happening that way and the heart condition is this way, then they can be forgiven. Any sin, any blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Who doesn't get forgiven? Those who sin defiantly, same as in Numbers, right? If you come with a heart defiant against the Lord, and you're just going through the, the, the motions, but you haven't really come and submitted to the king, we're going to see the same thing here, rebelliously, boldly, insolently, intentionally, literally with a high hand. That's called blasphemy, here it is, against the Spirit. So, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, 
But blasphemy, it says, against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Is there a sin that can't be forgiven? Apparently, what is it? Blasphemy against the Spirit. What is that? Well, let's look. And, and you know, Paul's a good illustration of this. If someone in ignorance who's come, doesn't know Jesus, he can speak blasphemy against Jesus, someone who's never been exposed to his power, divine presence, may reject him initially and be forgiven if he comes to repent faith. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. That sounds like a really long time. Now, what does that mean, blasphemy against the Spirit? It just means this. You have observed what God has done. In the Pharisees' case, is there the illustration here, the kingdom was among them. They understood the power. They understood Jesus' words. He said what he, who he was, and he did what he said he was going to do, and it lined up with what the Messiah said. And willfully and disobediently, even though the majority of the people began to say, this is the Messiah, no, this is not the Messiah. And then he said some foolish thing, this is, the, uh, this, is this guy doing it through the devil. There's no salvation there. Why? Because salvation is in their midst and they won't accept it. Do you see that? And we saw that already in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago? If we go, what, what, did, what did it say in Hebrews? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. What's that mean? We looked at this before. This is that person on the, on the peripheral of the church, right? They understand all the words, they do all the things, and they look, like they're, they look like they're a Christian, but they're really not in their private life. They're not bearing good fruit, are they? They're bearing uh, brambles, that's what Hebrew says. When they really know themselves, their life does not reflect it, and there's no fruit going on, but they look like they're a believer. But what happens? You're just going on sinful, sinning willfully. It's really hard to pick that out. Did you know that? Nobody really knows what's going on when you're by yourself. But sinning willfully, see, that's a, 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 a what did we call it before? To be uh, defiant, sinning defiantly, even though you know everything, see? All there, no, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin, verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of the judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he'll deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What are we talking about? Well, let's go back to Matthew uh, at the very end of verse 33. We're just talking about a heart attitude very similar to Numbers. If you come with a defiant heart attitude, you know what the Lord expects, but you won't do it. You understand the power. You understand the message. It's been very clear and been presented to you, and you won't submit, and you defiantly reject. There's no more sacrifice for sin. Like the Pharisees of old, they saw Jesus in their midst, he's doing what he's going to do, he said who he is, the power of God is among them, people are getting healed, people are getting saved, and they understand that and they reject it, willingly, willfully, defiant. There's no more sacrifice. You attribute the work of God to the work of demons, how can the Lord save you? He's not going to. Why? Because the heart attitude is not correct. You're not coming in humility. You're not coming in ignorance and unbelief, and when you're presented with the gospel, you submit yourself in repentance, you're coming with a defiant attitude. And then there's some ways you can look at this, and you don't have to really peer into the soul. Jesus just wants, he follows up with this in verse 33. Matthew, he says, 
Look at verse 33, if you would, and I don't have that on the screen, so back in, back in chapter 12, verse 33. And this is how words reveal character, the condition of the heart. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. In other words, you can tell, whatever, no matter what somebody says, by the fruit that's born. A truly redeemed person is going to bear spiritual fruit. An unredeemed person will not bear spiritual fruit. It's impossible for him to do so. Then he says to the, the Pharisees, he said, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what's good? You don't understand even the most basic of the kingdom being among you. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What they just get through saying? You didn't do it. It's, you're working through demons. The very Son of God in their midst doing the work of the Lord. The good man brings out of a good treasure what's good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what's evil. I tell you that every careless word that people speak shall be given an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. You're not saved by those things, but it makes it clear who you belong to. If you don't gather, you scatter. You'll know people by words. The fruit will be clear. Just clearly illustrating what forgiveness produces. So we can see what Paul is saying now when he comes, and it's important to get this clear. Verse 13, he says, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. On the Damascus road, Saul didn't deserve mercy, did he? No. No one does. But Paul was shown mercy. He received his indictment and he repented. And here's the thing, again, mercy, like the other things we see in the power of the gospel produce, mercy is in the aorist passive, Ela'eo, at a point in the past, God mercied him. What's that mean? It's just pointing back to his point of redemption. That's when all these things begin. That's when the fruit starts to be born. That's when all these things happen. That's why in the aorist, it's a point in the past, and this is carried on to an indicative. It's, it is the present condition. God met him, that's Paul, in his sinful, miserable, self-righteous ignorance, and he mercied him. God didn't give Paul what he deserved or what he had coming to him. That would have been death. Rather, he showed him mercy. And Paul was not only given salvation, but then he was given strength to live it out in the sense of being made equal to the task and able to live the life of the redeemed. And he was given faithfulness, not because he was faithful already, but by way of spiritual fruit, indicative of his relationship with God. And he was given service, a purpose for life that supersedes anything that came before. Paul's present life and his ministry were a result of mercy and grace. And beloved, that's how it works with everyone who responds to the true gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes and who comes to God in repentant faith, admitting their offense against a holy God, which was based in ignorance and unbelief, and the gospel produces a transformed life. Now, there's another section here of people that I want to talk about. Just as a footnote and a reminder. A transformed person doesn't sin defiantly. In both the Old and the New Testament, we understand defiant rebellion, Hebrews, Matthew, Numbers, that's, and defiantly is just rebelliously, boldly, insolently against God saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want. That is, those are not the words of a transformed person, okay? It's impossible to figure that out in a megachurch that doesn't ever teach anything like this. It's clear in the scriptures, and I just took you through even just a very small survey of those kinds of passages. 
Truly transformed people don't look at the obvious work of Christ and His commands and then willingly and blatantly choose to be rebelliously unrepentant, boldly, impertinently, purposely sinful and reject Christ's right to rule as king. Why? Because to be born again, according to Romans 10.9, you have to confess Jesus as and what does that mean if it doesn't mean that you give up your right to rule and you willingly submit to Him? And then He grants that to you by His mercy and grace and gives you the ability to keep His law, which you didn't want to before, but now you can. See? And the above type of pattern behavior of rebellious, defiant rejection of the commands of the Lord as a pattern of your life puts you in a very bad company and shows forth a rejection of salvation or a false profession of faith which produced no new person on the inside. Is that clear? See, because there's not, it's not possible. I mean, Scripture is so clear about this. Defiantly rebellious shows that, oh, you might have had some historical interaction, perhaps. You came forward because everybody did, and it was a really emotional, you know, and you felt bad about your sin, and so they just called you forward, and you, you did something, Right? Or maybe you come to church because your spouse does or your boyfriend does or because your parents did or whatever. Listen, if you're defiantly rebellious against what the Word of God says on a regular basis, no transformation occurred, okay? And we've got to be clear about that because that explains a lot about our experience with you know, my own relatives and people, that, friends of mine that I know who did one thing for a long period of time and now defiantly reject everything and no discipline on their life, you see? And further, and, and this is really, I think, where it can really pull into the reality of, of, of us on a daily basis. If a believer, so there's no a defiant rejection and rebelliously, insolently rejecting what Christ says and not living that way as a pattern indicates no relationship with him at all, okay? But if a believer allows themselves to be caught up in willful sin, because as we said before, it's possible for a redeemed person to be caught up in the very sins that the unredeemed world are in, right? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to say, and such for some of you, but come out from among them and be see you separate, says the Lord, and be holy, right? So it's possible to fall into it, as it were, the roaring lion Satan to devour the true believer in their sins. That's why he says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour, and what's the topic? In your sin. So you can allow things to get out of hand in your life, But we understand if that's the case, the Lord may cut us off out of the land of the living. He's not going to cut us off from eternal life, but from His church, if the testimony is causing a bunch of harm. And listen, beloved, we won't know when we've reached the end of the tolerance of God when the high-handed, unconfessed types of sin would prompt God to bring a believer home. And we get this understanding, and we've looked at this before, so I don't want to, I don't want to beat this too hard, but here's the thing. 1 John 5, 16. This is a passage I get a lot of questions during uh, Q&A, so I want to just talk about it here. And this instruction is, if you, if you understand the basic principles of Scripture that we just looked at, this doesn't, this doesn't, it's not confusing. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, so what's that imply? That there is some that will lead to death. There are some sins that will lead to death, Okay. He shall ask God, God and, and will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. In other words, you see a brother, and that's what they're talking about, but he sees a brother. So this is someone who is a believer, and they're in some pretty bad sin. And 
You don't know when that tolerance of God is done, but you're going to come over there and you're going to come alongside and that's the whole Matthew 18 thing. That's the whole bear one another burden thing. That's the come in there and get dirty with them and say, hey, let's get back where we need to be. Okay? And the Lord may grant that. And then he says this. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say that he should make a request for this. In other words, there may be a pattern that you can't, and you can't get the person back out of. And that may be headed towards the end of the tolerance of God and he's going to say to that believer, that's it. You're, you're, you're done damaging your testimony, you're done damaging the church, you're done whatever, and I'm going to bring you back, okay? All unrighteousness, he says, is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So there's some things that we're going to come alongside and we're going to bring them, and that's, that's the whole understanding of, of the Word of God in this area. But here's the thing, and we looked at this before, and we look at it often when we go to take communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, talking about how to how to take the communion and how to, how to uh, enjoy that amongst the, the church. And, and the church in Corinth, in Corinth was messing it up. And so he's given some instruction on how to take it. And he tells them, you know, eat at home, don't come and, and uh, you know, gobble up everything that's on the table and a bunch of stuff we looked at. Then he says this, you've got to examine yourself. Because if you don't examine yourself before you come to take communion, because this is about being close with Christ, right? Short sin list, confessing your sin. He says this, for he who eats and drinks, if you haven't examined yourself, What's it say? Eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What's going to happen? You haven't taken a good hard look at how you're living. You're living in sinfulness and disobedience to the Lord, and you're not taking, you realize you're coming to communion, but you're not taking care of this. Just coming as part of the whole process. For this reason, Paul says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, which is euphemistic of death. So, a number of passages talk about this. We, we, We've just barely surveyed just the, just the tops of them. It's possible to come and take communion and be in open sin and not confess it, and you're taking, you're, you're taking the communion in an unworthy manner, and the Lord will, he will judge you, and it says he'll judge you, and even if he has to judge you, it shows that you're not cast away with the world. So when dealing with unrepentant sin in the body of Christ, Church discipline is needed. We don't know what we don't know what that person, what their relationship really is with the Lord. Right now, their testimony appears to be somewhat tarnished. They, they're not doing what they should do. Matthew 18 says, "You go as a as a person, you approach them and and point out what looks to be an obvious sinful thing, and maybe it's not, and maybe you misread it, and you can talk and you realize, oh, okay, I was messed up, but maybe it is." They won't listen to that person. You take another person who's also witnessed the same thing, and they talk to them. They won't listen to them. And then you tell the church, and then the combined testimony of the church is trying to get the person to come back and be restored, and they won't listen to the church. And then you turn them over for the destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved. So God may use death to discipline them, indicating, mark it, they're truly his. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, where Paul says this, of such a one. I have, desired, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So his spirit may be saved. So if he's born again and he's living this open sinfulness and you put him out of the church, what's going to happen? The Lord may discipline him. He may actually take him home. If he takes him home, that indicates in that discipline and the home going that he really was born again. Or maybe you put him out of the church and they just go on and live this great life and, and there's no problems or whatever. And what did I tell you? They were openly, defiantly rebellious. You identified it in the church. It's not possible for that to be in, in communion with the church. They won't turn away, and you put them out. There's no discipline, no, nothing going on. You realize they weren't the Lord's to begin with. You see? So this is very, very clear. And it's important that we understand heart attitude as we come to faith. 
high-handed sin is no joke. It indicates a very serious condition. But listen, Paul wasn't among the Pharisees who knowingly rejected Christ after experiencing his work in the kingdom and rebelliously rejecting Jesus. Paul wasn't in that group. In verse 13 and 14 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, Paul acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now look at verse 14, and we're going to close. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And that statement lets us see the seventh principle of the power of the gospel, and that is abundant grace. What is grace? You've probably been given many, many definitions. This one will not be dissimilar. Grace is God's blessing given to condemned sinners freely without any worthiness on their part based on his own good pleasure and not on anything they've done or will do. That's grace. God's blessing given to condemned sinners freely without any worthiness on their part and based on his own good pleasure and not on anything they have done or will do. So salvation, enabling, spiritual gifts, fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness, purpose, understanding, perspective, mercy, compassion, loving forgiveness, exemption from judgment, health, trials, the promise of blessing, and every other perfect gift, every single thing we have is a result of grace. Everything. And when Paul says the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, there's no hyperbole there, okay? Paul expressed the facts with careful precision at the end of Romans 5 when he said in 5.19, for as through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who's the one man? Adam. And we confirm that every day, don't we? Even so, through the obedience of the one, who's that? Jesus. The many will be made righteous. The law came so that the transgression would increase. And we looked at that, didn't we? When the law was given, it was obvious how bad we were. We need to hear that, don't we? The gospel, part and parcel of the gospel, is the presentation of the bad news. You stack in your self-righteous life up against it and realize you're falling horribly short. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Mark it, beloved. For Paul and every repentant sinner, there is no conceivable accumulation of sin that grace cannot overflow. If you're approaching it from a position of unbelief and ignorance, beloved, and even, and listen, even the discipline, even the discipline, Hebrews says, is part of a good God who loves you and wants you to walk with Him. That, even that is grace. He's not content that you stay where you are. See, Grace increases the more we need it, and there's always more to follow. Martin Luther wrote this. I love this quote. I could read it like ten times and just kind of soak it up. I'll share it with you. Quote, Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light, and could, indeed, light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that 
if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over, full of grace. I love that. Aren't you so grateful that you stand in grace and that if you've come in ignorant unbelief and not defiantly that the Lord loves you enough to pour out His grace on you? God's grace is so beautiful. It not only outstrips our sin, but along with it comes this last part. The faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And that statement is our eighth principle of the power of the gospel. What does it produce? It always produces faith and love. It always comes along with that, see? And again, this is, again, as I encourage you to read the Word every day, this is this great mirror on the effect of the true gospel as an outcome. Hearts like Paul's, previously filled with unbelief, are now filled with faith. Hearts once filled with hatred are filled with love. Do you see that in your life, beloved? Does love overflow in your life? People who don't deserve it, is that something you give out? Do you understand the abundant grace that's the source of every good thing? And you sit in that grace and you would never defiantly reject the Lord's authority over you because that's not the nature of those who are, who've been given a new nature. See, What kind of sin do you see in your life, beloved? Do you see defiant insolence? Do you see sin unconfessed, unmourned over, actively disobeying the Lord? clear areas where he's spoken about your conduct and you're not only you're not only not confessing it you don't even mourn over it do you see that piling up in your life listen that is not the place you want to be that does not indicate redeem, being redeemed and you should fully expect if you are redeemed that the lord would discipline you so if you've gone a long time with that just unconfessed unmourned over sin i would i would encourage you to take a hard look at really whose you are because i don't think any transformation occurred and that's not me saying that. It's just a clear teaching of the Scripture. It's a heart attitude when you come. Or on the other side, have you cherished the mercy of God and willingly submit to Him as Lord? You don't do it perfectly, but has the gospel produced understanding and perspective on just how offensive your sin was to God? And the longer you're in the faith, the more you understand how offensive it is, which just makes your testimony so much more powerful who you used to be. Those are really the questions, I think, as we come to the end. I'd like you to bow with me and we just, we'll pray and just allow the Lord to, to help us absorb some of these things. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for uh, the blessing of worship and giving and all the things that our, the simple church has done. And I pray that we'll be about that faithfully as you look at us and you watch those things. Uh, Lord, as we understand uh, the hard attitude that has to be part of the redeemed nature and the change that has occurred by being delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, it shouldn't surprise us that these kinds of things are, should be apparent. This is normal Christianity. We, we miss it, though, because many in pulpits around the country and around the world have dumbed it down so much that no one even knows what salvation is, let alone. to be good testimonies of the grace we've received and the mercy that was given to us in unbelief. Help us to be bold because you have the power through your gospel to transform lives. It's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. 
And Father, I thank you for the reminder of, of maybe our heart attitude as we walk through this life. Paul never had a, an attitude of superiority. He never looked down his nose at anybody. He was clear and made sure that the gospel was clear, presented it in such a way that it was understood. And Father, I thank you for the opportunities we'll have this week as we go out that we can give, we can show forth love and faith, the fruit of the Spirit. We can be clear on what our purpose for life is and be thankful for all that you've done. Win some thankful Christians which fill your church with joy and take it out into the world with the good news. I pray it will be that way. If we haven't been that way before, that you'll start that new work. And if we sit here today and we just find defiance in our lives, we find unconfessed sin, we're not really that concerned about disobeying what the Lord says, today's the day of salvation. Did you know that? The Lord is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but come to the knowledge of salvation. Today's the day for you. Stop playing the game. Even if no one else knows, the Lord knows that you're not His. Today you confess that he's Lord and really mean it. Repent of your sins, acting foolishly in unbelief. It's another opportunity for you. You'll be on the outside, rejecting those things, knowing full well that God is at work and not accepting them. Let today be the day. The very one who saved you is the one you'll stand before. How clear will the judgment be when the one who offered himself up for you and you rejected it. How well that will he know you? Perfectly. And you'll get precisely what you deserve and what I deserved and everyone deserved, which is cast away from God's presence forever. Don't let that be your case. Repent and believe today. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Father, thank you for that clear message. We thank you for the word. Thank you for the fellowship. We thank you for the weakness we have before us. Help us to apply ourselves diligently to all that we do that we might adorn your gospel working hard, and then, Father, also for every opportunity, help us to use it. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said.